Matthew chapter 13. We will be covering three parables this morning. Matthew 13, verse 24, and we're going to read all the way to 43. I'll be reading out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. All right, Matthew 13. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them and put the wheat in my barn. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows into a tree and the birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like this when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. Then leaving the crowd aside, outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the world. The son of man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your holy word this morning. God, we just are so thankful that we can open this book and we can hear from you, God. Thank you that you use your word to speak to your church and to lead your church and correct us and challenge us and point us to Jesus and point us to the cross. And so Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place. We ask that you would help us, give us ears to hear, give us ears to understand. Would you take this, this is your sword, and would you cut us and convict us and give us hope and encourage us and do all that you do through your word this morning. Would you help me just to communicate what you have already spoken, Lord? We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this sermon is When Heaven Comes Slowly. Now, I'm honestly, I think I'm probably the most impatient person I know. My wife would be like, yes, he is so impatient. Um, the other day I was at In-N-Out, okay, and we were inside and I was, I was waiting for a refill 
And you know how like it's kind of crowded and you're like, should I just squeeze in there and get my refill? And I was like, no, I'm going to practice patience. So I'm just standing there. But I was behind the slowest, most patient man who was waiting, letting everyone else get their drinks. And I'm just standing behind him like, this is unreal. And I, I honestly probably stood there. It felt like, it felt like minutes. And I was like, I cannot believe my little lesson in patience right now. I could not handle it. Or how about driving, right? If you're impatient, driving just brings out all of your impatience, right? Like who really stops, like stops at a stop sign? Like who does that? And then like, I don't even, I don't even fully brake when I'm reversing and then put it into drive. Like I don't even, I don't know if that's bad, but I don't brake. Mariana's like, just stop, just stop for a second. If you're like, if, you know, if you plan exactly how much time you need to get somewhere, and then something is happening on the way, like traffic or an accident, you're like, oh my gosh, right? But thank God for the gift of our iPhones. So impatient people like me don't have to be patient anymore, right? So I pull out my iPhone. And then what happens when your service isn't loading and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't even go to my iPhone right now because it's not loading. The internet's not working. I'm just impatient. I'm impatient all the time. And I think that God, he knows that about us. And I have a feeling that most of us are at least to some level impatient. It, it may be with some, maybe certain things, maybe with other things. The disciples were radically impatient and we see characters in the Bible. Thankfully, honestly, like we're not alone. When you read the Bible, you see normal impatient humans that God is using. But here's the thing, God's not like us. And it, it makes us crazy, right? Where we value speed, God seems to move really slow. Remember when he promised Abraham, hey, I'm going to just bless the whole world through your son. And he was like 75. And they're like, okay, that's interesting. And then 25 more years go by. And Abraham's like, remember that promise? He goes like, I know I got it. But he's like, I'm I'm about to die, God. You remember Jesus? Remember when Jesus says, hey, I'm coming soon. We're like, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus. Like, are you really coming soon? God's not like us in, t- in terms of speed. It's, it's the same thing with strength. When we as humans, we value strength. God seems to like value weakness and smallness. We see that in countless story after story after story in the Bible. David, no, his dad didn't even, ex- like when uh, Solomon or Samuel was like, hey, one of your sons is gonna be king. And he's like, all right, I'll get all my sons. He didn't even pick David. He's like, for sure not that one. He didn't even let him come to be looked at. Where we value strength, uh, we're, God is like, no, I see things a little bit differently. When we value strategy, like we're into strategy, right? God is like, hey, I have a different idea of what victory looks like. Like imagine if you were in Joshua's army and we're going into the promised land. It's been 40 years and we're finally gonna go and I have my sword. And he's, God's like, all right, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to march around the city today and you'll just do that for about a week. Like, what? And honestly, you're marching around and there's for sure guys on the top of the, the like wall looking at you, like making fun of you, like, what are you doing? And honestly, I, I could not handle that. Where we value strategy, God values something very different. Where we value winning and victory, God seems to value loss and even death. Do you remember the cross? Do you remember the Christian life? He says, pick up your cross, die daily and follow me. And this morning, Jesus is giving us insight into what his kingdom is really like and the values, some unique values to his kingdom. And what what he shows us is really surprising. It's really maybe frustrating. It's really counterintuitive. In the rest of Matthew 13, Jesus, he gives us seven parables in this chapter. We're gonna go over three this morning 
And they're all giving us this one main idea of, of what God's kingdom is like. And we're going to do that in two points. So the first point is this. Jesus is patient with his enemies. Okay, Jesus is patient with his enemies. <clears throat> you remember the first parable of the wheat and the weeds? Uh, some translations, NASB, New King James, it calls it tares, the wheat and the tares. That's maybe more familiar. Jesus plants the son of man, which is Jesus. He goes out, he plants a good, like, good seed into his flock, into his flock, into his field. And in that field, an enemy comes in the night and sows weeds, right? We know that's Satan. People think that was probably, um, like that actually happened in that day. Like if you had an enemy and he just planted a bunch of wheat, there was this weed called darnel, which looked just like wheat until the end. And so enemies would actually go sabotage each other's like crops and plant all these weeds. And you couldn't even really tell what was what until the end. Uh, So the enemy comes and does that. And here's the thing, Jesus, what Jesus says to do with this problem of the weeds is not what we would expect. And remember who the weeds were? It was, Jesus referred to it as sons of, well, in the ESV of sons of Satan. That's kind of like sons of the enemy, sons of Satan. So we know Satan plants these weeds. Essentially, the weeds in the world are anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Anybody who doesn't have saving faith, they don't follow Jesus. So the world right now, that's the world is a field. If you're a Christian, you're wheat. If you're not a Christian, you're weeds. It's, it's that simple. It's like two groups of people. Now, what does the farmer or Jesus say? In verse 30, he says, let both grow together until the harvest right? Let both grow together until the harvest. So what's Jesus's attitude towards his enemies, towards people who don't trust him, towards people who are like sabotaging his people? Like radical patience. Hey, just let them grow. Let them grow with my people. Jesus is so patient and gracious and kind and generous to his enemies. And you know what? Thank God, because you and I were once his enemies, right? And imagine if he was like, hey, the second I see a tear, a weed, I'm tearing it up. None of us would have made it. We were all born tares. We were all born not uh, sons of God. And, And yet Jesus was patient with us. And thankfully, we became wheat by the sovereign saving hand. He planted a good seed in our hearts and the soil was good and we were saved and we trust in Jesus. If God would have just rid the world of evil, no one would have made it. We were all enemies of God. And we see a specific reason why God is waiting so long, even though he's like, hey, I'm coming soon. In, in 2 Peter 3, 9, and this is, what, this is what he says. The Lord is not slow, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should reach repentance. Why is God taking so long? Because he loves his enemies and he wants them to be saved. St. Augustine said famously, what is a, a tear today may be a wheat tomorrow. Did you get that? What's a tear today? The person in your life who you're like, oh my gosh, they may be a wheat tomorrow. And, and included in that is, hey, that's your neighbors, that's your coworkers, that's your family members, that's the nations. Why is God not just ridding the world of his enemies? Well, because we have more people to reach. There's more nations to reach. And so God is like, I'm waiting because I love 
my enemies and I'm patient with my enemies. And yet, honestly, if, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm, I'm like the disciples. I'm like, hey, let's get this done evil. Let's just rid the world of evil. Let's get it done. Let's call it a day. And the two of Jesus' disciples, he, he nicknamed them the sons of thunder. They, they had this attitude. In Luke 9, look at this little story. Luke 9, 52. He sent messengers ahead of them, ahead of him, who went and entered into a village of the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's me. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Right? Like, that's us. We do that. We have that. I have that attitude towards people in my life who don't know Jesus, and I'm like, oh my gosh, God, just, okay, I'll be honest. I le- there are legitimately people in my life who do evil things, who I know, and I, my prayer has been, God, would you just make them get caught? Let justice happen. Let this evil be gone. And that's just like my honest heart. And this week, God has convicted me, and he's like, hey, you need a different prayer. You need a different prayer. Your prayer needs to be, Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, would they come to know you? And God was like, and actually, you know me and they know you. Do you see like the connection there? I want you to go and love them and be patient with them and be kind to them. And that, that's something that I'm, I'm honestly like this week was really convicting of me. That's, that's true on a personal level, but this is also true like on a cultural level. Uh, right now, Christians, we in America live in a, a pretty unique time culturally where like we're, we're more on the margins than we've been in a long time. Um, and and we're, we can be tempted as Christians to just bemoan that problem. And it's a problem. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing our culture is rejecting Jesus and his word and all of the values in the Bible. It's not a good thing. But, but our, our temptation is to simply be like, oh, the world. Can you believe the world? Can you believe they think that? Can you believe they do that? And um, our culture sees that. They see that attitude from us. They see that like resistance from us. And uh, here's a story also from this week. So I just went um, down, there was a documentary, a Christian documentary on like Genesis and creation this week that was released. So I went to see that and it was in a normal movie theater. It was like a special release. So I'm there and um, I was in line or I was walking in and I was behind a group of Christians and the theater right next door was 50 Shades of Grey or whatever the dark, whatever the other one is, right? The next one. And they, and my wife overheard them say, can you believe it? The very next theater over, like, I guess that's just the world we live in. Okay, now, on the one hand, that's true. Like, yeah, that's a bummer. That's a bummer next door. That's being played. It's a bummer. That's the world we live in. But at the same time, we and Jesus are called to be gracious and patient and loving and engage the culture that is the enemy of God. And when all we do is bemoan, oh, can you believe the world we live in? We're not like Jesus, we're not like him. We're called to be patient. We're not called to have this heart of judgment. That's not our job. We're called to be gracious and patient to the enemies of God. Also, similar to this is there's, there's, there's weeds in the church. Uh, many people in church history have interpreted this parable to only be about the church. That's pretty common. Like in a church, there's going to be wheat and weeds. I don't think that's true because the, par- the parable says the, the field is the world. But there are certainly weeds in every church, everywhere you go, there will be weeds that look on the outside just like 
wheat. False Christians, people just doing the right thing on the outside, maybe even believing the right thing in their head, but they don't have a saving faith in Jesus. That's true. In our church, there, are, there will always be weeds. But when you hear that, my first, my first instinct is like, let's get them out. Let's get the weeds out. We got to get, I don't, I don't like weeds. In, I'm kind of like a perfectionist. We can't have weeds in my plants. Like I want my plants nice. But, but Jesus is like, hey, that's not your job. That's not your job to weed out the church of all of the weeds. In fact, when you try to do that, what do you end up doing? You start uprooting wheat. You start uprooting. Remember when it says Jesus didn't uh, extinguish a flickering wick and a bruised reed. There are bruised reeds, weak Christians. And when we start saying, hey, and we start weeding, like we're going to uproot some Christians. And there's going to be people who really love Jesus and, and are like struggling. And next thing like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. That's, that is not our job. As tempting as there, there are people who like me are like about truth and what is true and what is not true. Jesus says, that's my job. I will sort that out in the end. I want you to be patient. And you know what? Every time the church has gotten serious about weeding, we've done some atrocious things in history. Just one example is the Inquisition where we were just like killing people. Even, even in the Protestant Reformation, we would kill people who had like false doctrines. Like we've done that in the attempt to make the church pure. There is no such thing as a pure church until Jesus comes back. There will always be weeds. And so listen, here's, here's for some of us, don't go church hopping looking for your perfect church. You won't find it. And even if you find it, you've probably heard this. The moment you walk in the door, you just ruined it. We, we probably heard that. We are all broken. We are all, we all need the grace of God. And so you are welcome here at, at this broken church with broken pastors and teachers and leaders. And we're broken. We need the grace of God. That's what the church is we can't be all about weeding out imperfections here. Jesus will do that in the end. So Jesus has love for his enemies. He's patient towards his enemies. And just the last point on that, do you remember how Jesus ended his life and his ministry? On the cross, hanging, and, and saying of the people crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. He's saying that to the very, he's praying for the very people who are putting him on a cross. That's the attitude of Jesus towards us. We were his enemies. We were in sin and he loves us and was patient with us and he came after us. And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to do exactly the same thing. We're called to be so radically patient, so radically gracious with the enemies of God. Amen? The second point of the, these parables is this. Jesus is patiently building his kingdom. He's patiently building his kingdom. Now, if I were building a kingdom, it would not be the way Jesus has chosen to build a kingdom. The Jews had an idea of, man, when, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna get the job done, right? They had this idea of what the Messiah would do. They, they had an idea of what he would do to their enemies, to the Romans, of, of what he would, even like what kind of horse he'd be riding and he'd come with a sword and he'd make everything right. And do you know what? Christians, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. When we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, we can just so easily transfer all the values of the world over into our walk with Jesus, right? We value strong Christians. We value powerful people in the kingdom. We value growth and speed. We, we have magazines with the fastest growing church on the cover. 
We value efficiency. We value status. We value wealth. And we think the more of all that we can get, the better for the kingdom of God. That's what we, it's just like, that is what we think. That is the air we're breathing all day long. And so we just assume, yeah, it's the same way for Jesus. All this strength and wealth and power and status, that's what the kingdom of God is about. And Jesus is saying in these parables, hey, my kingdom is not like this world. The values of my kingdom are not the values of this world. And honestly, no one's gonna tell us this except for this book. Nowhere else in any of the world, in any other book, are you gonna be told, hey, weakness and status and money and power are not the goal. Like that doesn't make sense unless God would say, hey, there's something more important that I value in building my kingdom. And so he gives us these two pictures of what his kingdom is like. He says, my kingdom's like a mustard seed and my kingdom is like yeast, okay? Mustard seed at that time, at that time in that known area was the smallest of the garden plant seeds, right? So you're gonna plant a garden, that's the smallest one, but it grew into the largest of all the garden plants, like eight to 12 feet, it was more or less like a tree. For a garden, like that was impressive. And then yeast, we know about yeast. If you bake bread, you just take a little bit of it and it spreads throughout the entire dough. It's magic. It doesn't make sense. And, and Jesus says, my kingdom is like that little mustard seed and that little bit of yeast. And the, the notable thing about them is their smallness, their apparent smallness. And Jesus is saying, that is how my kingdom starts and that is how my kingdom grows. Smallness weakness, humility, unseen power. We, from the beginning, we see God doing this. Same with Abraham and Moses. These were not like all-star guys. Like, and God's like, I want them on my team. Moses was 80 years old, washed up in the desert somewhere, just like, I hate my life. I'm just gonna be a, like a farmer. I'm running from the government. That's who Moses was. He was 80 years old. That's who Moses was. We said the same thing with the battles of God. When you read the battles that God won, you're like, what are you doing? Why don't you get all the strong guys together? Gideon, right? Hey, he had like 10,000 people and God whittled it down to 300 people. That's not strength. That's weakness. That's apparent weakness. We see Jesus modeling that. God, who created everything and has all power, became a baby, like an actual baby. And he was a poor baby. And he was a blue collar worker his entire life. And then his disciples were 12 untrained men. And the people he spent time with were outcasts and sinners. And you know what his church growth strategy was? Because there were times where he started to get momentum and everyone was hearing about them and there's crowds and thousands of people. And every time that happened, he would just say something so weird or offensive and everybody would leave. And his disciples were like, why do you do that? Don't you know you're offending them? Don't you know like we had a thing going? And Jesus is like, I know, let's go. And he stuck with those 12 untrained men. Like that doesn't line up with what we tend to value even in a church, even in growth. And as, as followers of Jesus, we have to have a different posture towards smallness and towards weakness. It's specifically in a couple specific areas. Number one, we have to have a different posture towards our weakness. We are, are vessels of clay, the Bible talks about. We're cracked vessels of clay. We were made from dirt. And we are weak. And from who Jesus chose, and why, why would Jesus choose 12 unschooled men? Why would he save you and me? 
Because weakness has this, this ability to help us realize our need for God. Weakness has this ability to make us realize our need for God. We all do need God for every breath, for everything we do, but we forget. We think we're strong. We think we can do it. And so God allows weaknesses to happen in our life so that we realize, no, wait, I can't do this on my own. I actually need strength from somewhere else. I need God. We aren't called to rely on the strength of people or on chariots or on talents or giftings or money. We rely on God. Like that's what we actually do. God is actually real. We actually rely on an actual God, not our own strength. But, but how often do we every day resent our weakness and our smallness? And this is what your weaknesses and your smallnesses are designed to do, to make you run to God. Like, God, I need you today in this moment. I cannot do it. And even in your walk with God, like, man, I feel, do any of you guys ever feel weak in your walk with God? And if you ever try to read this book and you're like, oh, I just cannot do it right now. Listen, that is normal. And it's designed to make us cry out all the more, God, I need your help right now. I can't even read my Bible without your help. I can't even pray without your help. And we crave those mountaintop experiences and and mountaintop experiences are real and they're biblical and they're awesome. And people have them. Elijah had them, Moses had them. Jesus went up on a mountain, was shining like the sun. It was awesome. We've had, hopefully you've had at least a couple mountaintop experiences. You're like, man, God is good. God is real. I don't care about anything. I'm chilling. And then like a couple days go by and all of a sudden like that's all gone. And you're like, I hate everything. I hate my life. I don't want to read my Bible. That happens. And there's a, there's a really good story when that, that actual thing happened to Elijah. Elijah's greatest strength, his greatest day of victory, his highlight reel, he was on this mountain with all the prophets of Baal, all of Israel's watching. It was this showdown and he sets up these two altars and he's like, okay, if Baal's real, do your thing and make him light your altar. They went on for hours and hours and hours. He's just teasing them. He's all by himself. Nothing happens. Then he's like, pour a bunch of water on this altar. They pour so much water. It's just overflowing with water. Then he calls out to God and just lightning comes down, lights the fire. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, Elijah, God is real. Elijah goes and kills with his own hands the 400 prophets in front of everyone. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, God is so gnarly. He's amazing. Elijah's like, this is awesome. Mountaintop experience. The next day, he hears, he hears the queens mad at him for that. That makes sense. And, and he, he freaks out. He utterly has an emotional breakdown. He was just on a mountaintop facing off with like the whole world. The next day, he's like, I can't do it. He runs away into the wilderness. He's depressed. He's irrational. He's like, God, no one else is following you. It's only me. Nothing is good. Just take my life. I'm done. He's like the same guy the next day. And God's, it's funny. God's like, you're just tired. Like take a nap. Literally, he takes a nap. He actually, and that's significant. We're human, we're human beings and we get tired. We are designed to need sleep and food. And God's like, you're just weak. Take a nap. And he brings him some food. And then he brings him back up to the mountain, right? And so he's just like, man, I just freaked out. This is the worst. God's probably so mad at me. And then remember how God speaks to him in that moment. If you remember this story. It says there's an earthquake and God wasn't in the earthquake. And there is fire, this crazy fire. God wasn't in the fire. This mighty wind blew through. God wasn't in the wind. And then a small, a still, small whisper. 
and God spoke to Elijah through a whisper. And I think that's significant. Yes, we have mountaintop experiences, but more often than not, God's gonna speak to us when we're overwhelmed and we, we can't do it just in a still, small whisper. It's small. That's normal. That's part of how God communicates to weak human beings. It's, man, I'm gonna crack this book open in the morning and like, it doesn't feel like much. Like, did God even speak to me? Maybe a whisper? I'm not sure. Like, is the spirit speaking to me? God, speak to me. And it's just this little impression smallness is normal in your relationship with God. It's normal. If you're not just on top of the mountain every day, you're not alone. You are not alone. And so a relationship with Jesus looks like just daily small acts of seeking his face. That's, that's literally what it is. Small acts of faithfulness seeking Jesus. And most days it may feel like a whisper. Some days it may just be a wilderness desert. He's silent. And some days he's going to minister to you, but we're called to just this small, faithful walk with Jesus. So we have a, a, a different posture towards our weakness. The second thing, we have a different posture to small obedience, okay? Little acts of just, I'm serving Jesus, I'm obeying Jesus. The, the most Christ-like things you will ever do, most people will never see. The most Christ-like things you ever do, most people will never see it. Most people won't ever see it. And then there are seasons when we're like, Jesus, I'm doing the right thing. And I'm, I'm praying and I don't see growth. Like, what's going on, Jesus? I'm, I'm praying for a family member or a friend who's walked away from Jesus and like, nothing's happened, Jesus. I'm praying for breakthrough for a sin in my life. Like, Jesus, please help me. Why is there not breakthrough? praying for breakthrough in a marriage or a friendship to heal. Jesus, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it growing? Why isn't it getting better? Praying for like bitterness in our own hearts to go away. You ever experienced that? Lord, I thought I got rid of that. Why is this to hear? Jesus, help me. And, and we're just called to small, faithful obedience to Jesus in all of those things. Um, if you've ever done youth ministry or just been a parent, you've done youth ministry, um, oftentimes it feels like nothing is growing. It just is like, what are we doing here? Honestly, it's like there were seasons where it felt like nothing at all good happened. And you're just pouring your heart out and you're just loving. And it's just like nothing is happening. And there was a season for me when I was doing youth ministry here and there was no growth and I was so frustrated. And we have a prayer meeting before youth group. And we got to this point where like, Jesus, you have to move. We're so desperate for you. And there's this verse in Galatians that we prayed. I have it up here. So let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So we pray that like maybe in faith, maybe just please God. And you guys, that night, a high schooler got saved. That night, I remember that day, like it was like, yes, God. And he knew, he was like, you need to wait until you're that desperate. So, you know, like I saved him. So you're not like, oh, he's got saved because you're awesome. Like we were like, God just did that. He did that. And that verse and that night will forever be in my mind. Small acts of faithful obedience over years, maybe. God says, don't get tired. Wait at the right time. You will reap if you don't give up. A, a similar thing for, for all of us in our daily life. Like, 
man, I'm trying to obey Jesus. I'm trying to say no to sin. I'm trying to do a good job on my marriage. I'm trying to be faithful at work. Is, is there any point to this? And there's another verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It's really similar. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Nothing you ever do for Jesus will be in vain. Even if you're not seeing the growth, like why isn't this happening, Jesus? The third thing is we have a different posture to the leaven, the smallness, the leaven of sin. Um, Three other things are called leaven in the New Testament. It's sin, false teaching, and religious hypocrisy. And sin, false teaching, and religious hypocrisy grow just, they're just like leaven. It, it grows. It's small. You don't think it's a big deal. It's out there. It's, not, it's nothing. And then it just grows and it grows and it grows. Sin most often doesn't present itself like, hey, I'm going to ruin your life. Do you want to do this? Sin is like, hey, this isn't a big deal. Satan, when he tempts us, is not going to say, I'm going to try to ruin your life and your walk with Jesus. That's not what Satan does. He says, hey, it's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. Jesus' blood will forgive you. Just it's this little thing. It's like bait on a hook, right? And, and, and it's, like not, it's just this little thing. But the more we give provision and the more we engage in sin, it grows. It has this power that though it started small, it's just this monster all of a sudden like, where did this happen? How did this happen? And this is why resisting temptation, even in a small little unseen way, is so important. That's why it's so important. It's, when you're in that moment of temptation, it seems like the littlest deal in the world. But that moment of resisting could be, that is preventing this whole thing to grow. By the grace of God, he provides a way out. He says, I will make a way out and, and it won't overcome you. You can resist. And the other thing is when we sin, that's why we have to confess our sin. Do you know what cuts off the leaven? Confession. Cuts it off. Oh my gosh, I gave in. I'm ashamed. I can't, what am I going to do? Satan says, just keep it in the dark. Just keep hiding it. If people find out, it's, it's going to get really bad. But Jesus says, bring that into the light. And that is where healing happens when we confess our sin. If we don't confess, it's just growing. It's just growing in us. And we're gonna just, every day it's gonna get harder and harder and harder. And so we have a different posture towards the leaven of sin. And in this parable, it's, it's, it's so cool because when we, when we like really think on these truths, they make sense. This is like, no, Jesus, you're right. This smallness, you're right. This sounds right. But our world is not, is not gonna say that. The world is not gonna say that. And I love that the parables and the teachings of Jesus, they're, they're so like, spot on to our actual experience. They're like, yes, that's what it's like. Like who of us hasn't asked at some point, like God, where are you? Why aren't you destroying that enemy? Why aren't you growing? Why aren't you bringing breakthrough? What, like, don't you see God? Like, haven't we been there? Haven't we been like, where are you? Don't you see? Don't you see the enemy? Don't you see my problem? Don't you see this? Aren't you gonna do something? Why are you taking so long? I believe your promises, but you're taking so long. Or God, why don't I feel close to you? Why don't I feel close to you? Even like, God, don't you care? Or even God, are you really good? We experience that. And the key when we're in these moments is to remember the greatest act where God was the smallest. 
and the most humble and the most like, what are you doing, God? Is when God himself was hanging and dying on a cross. That moment of weakness and apparent just loss and the enemy is apparently just, just, just killed the son of God. That moment, the moment of the cross is when God was working the greatest salvation, your salvation, forgiving the sins of the world, of his church in that moment of weakness and loss. And you know what? Jesus in that moment experienced the absence of God on the cross so that we never have to experience the absence of God. We don't because Jesus suffered in our place. And because Jesus was punished for our sins, we don't have to be punished for our sins. On the cross, the moment of absolute just weakness, God is at work in our behalf. And so every day when you're just in it and you're suffering and it's hard, remember the cross. Remember that in those moments is when God loves to show up on behalf of his people. It's when he loves to show up. It's when he loves to say, remember what I did for you. Remember that I love when you are weak because then I can be strong in you. Don't resent your weakness. Like let it just push you to Jesus. Because, and I love this, our suffering and our weakness is not in vain and it's only a short little while, according to God. A short little while. Because the kingdom is going to come. And the day's coming when Jesus is not going to be on a cross, but he's going to come in his glory in the clouds and he's going to take us home. The day's coming when all our suffering and our slowness and our weakness is no more. The day's coming. We don't have to view God through this mirror dimly like, God, where are you? What are you saying? You are going to see God face to face. That day is coming. The day's coming when the weeds are no more. Look at this verse in Psalm 92. Though the wicked sprout like weeds and evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, O Lord, will be exalted forever. Your enemies, Lord, will surely perish. All evildoers will be scattered. That day's coming. We can trust him with that day. And then the day's coming when the mustard seed and the yeast is full grown. It's full grown. Look at these verses in Habakkuk. For the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Like those are promises. That day is coming. We just have to hold on in this weak state for a little longer and just cling to Jesus. And I would just say this, if you're not in the kingdom yet, if, if, if you're not like, yeah, I'm walking with Jesus, I trust in Jesus. Listen, he's been so patient to you and so kind to you and he loves you and he has this offer, come to me, give me your sin, give me your weakness and I will forgive you and you will be with me forever, like today. And then for the rest of us walking with Jesus, I'm gonna close with that second Peter verse and he says, hey, the Lord's not slow. Look, look at how this finishes. This is, this is a good word for us to finish. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace <coughs> and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. <coughs> so that's our call. Jesus is coming. He's gonna make it right. He's gonna sort things out with his enemies. But until then, it's this slow pursuit of Jesus, being diligent to be without spot or blemish. And listen, if you have spots or blemish, there's a good place to bring them this morning. It's to Jesus, to the blood of the lamb who makes us spotless, who removes our sin. So let's worship Jesus. Who's, who, he's got it. He's seated on his throne. He's not stressed out today. And let's, let's come to him with our sin. Let's come to him and confess. Let's come to him and be washed in his blood. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are, you are sovereign and in control and you are bringing a kingdom and you will make all things right. We believe that, Jesus. But until that day comes, man, keep us faithful, Lord, in just daily trust and daily obedience and daily just resisting temptation and daily confessing of our sins. Jesus, would we not despise our weakness, but would we just run to you when we're weak? Would we run to you, ask your spirit for help, ask you to help us to, to, to get out of temptation, ask us to help us get up in the morning and just spend a few minutes in your word. Jesus, help us to love our enemies in the world as you've loved us and loved them. Would the world see, man, this is such a gracious group of people. Like, I, I want to know them more. What's going on there? And Jesus, right now, would you just come, would you bring your spirit and would you allow us just to worship you? You are so good to us. You are so patient with us. You are so worthy of our worship. So right now, would we worship you, Lord? Maybe worship to us just feels small and silly. Like I can't sing that well. I'm embarrassed or I don't know, maybe I'm just gonna sit on a carpet like this is silly. Jesus, would we, would we just take a small step in worship today? Just a small step, maybe if you're calling us to raise our hands or to bow our knee or to take communion or the small step of confession, the small step of like, I'm gonna sing. I'm not just gonna like mouth these words. I'm gonna actually sing to you. Jesus, meet us in the smallness. We need your help, Lord. We're weary. This life is hard for us, Jesus, but you, you are not weak. You are strong. You say, come to me. So we come to you now, Jesus. We come to you. Would you restore our souls?